The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, show number 273, premium for 9 July 2010. To the Mac Observers, Mac Geek Cab. I am Dave Hamilton here in Durham, New Hampshire. Next to me, but not in Durham, New Hampshire, is. Oh, that's you. Next to, I'm not next to you. Oh, well, virtually, the, I'm next to you. That's right. You are on his screen. <laughs> John F. Ron here in Fairfield, Connecticut. And then back in lovely New Hampshire, we have. Below John and Dave is Pilot Pete. So, yes, uh, this is our premium show. It is our first premium show for July. And uh, again, we are experimenting with the bandwidth on Ustream. So uh, we will we will be sure to remember that. And I say this as much for your benefit as it is for ours, meaning those of us that are producing this show. Uh, we will do our 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 make every effort to make sure that any responses we make to items mentioned in the Ustream chat room uh, are properly predicated before we respond to them so that uh, mo- because we realize that most of our audience is of course you folks that are listening and uh, and the chat room is uh, is filling up but that's a that's a good thing so uh john let's jump right into it shall we with uh with connor we shall is that good all right let's see if we can make this work all right connor take it away hello mac geek gabbers this is connor p with a desktop wallpaper question I take my MacBook Pro to school every day. Well, I did. It's the summertime now. But periodically, when I would leave for a moment or turn my back, my um, fellow classmates, being rather malicious, would sometimes think they were being funny and change my wallpaper to some pictures of Nicolas Cage. That's a long story. But regardless, I would swiftly remove the pictures, and they would no longer be in uh, anywhere that I could see in the system preference pane for desktop wallpapers. Then when I go to plug in another screen, it that picture appears again and is the desktop wallpaper for that new screen, and I have to go change it for that. So they ne- they never actually downloaded a file per se to the computer. They browsed to the file on the web and right clicked on it and selected set as desktop wallpaper. So my question is, is there like a cache somewhere that stores these files that are used as desktop wallpapers that aren't added from the system preference pane? This is where you cut me off. All right, so we shall cut you off. Uh, yeah, so I did a little digging, and in fact, there is a place where that particular file is stored. And you're right, once you make it work that way, it appears on any screen. I did that uh, when we were at Macworld Expo, John. If you'll remember, we had a, 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 they had a screen behind us when we did the podcast live on the show mm-hmm. floor. And so I, uh, I had taken... The, the 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 desktop image of of our logo i'd made our logo into my desktop image and cleared everything off my desktop on my alternate screen so that on that mm-hmm. big huge screen uh our logo would appear behind us and it looked really cool and now anytime i plug in any other screen anywhere boom that logo appears or if i remove my desktop logo that's what appears so i checked around and i found it 
and is stored in your home folder. So it's on a per user basis. It's in your home folder in library slash Safari slash or in the library folder in the Safari folder. And it is called Safari desktop picture. And it's either dot GIF dot PNG or dot JPEG, depending on what the format of that picture is. So that's how uh, that's how that little bit of magic works. Okay. So what, what was happening? Because yeah, as, as a uh, normally it's going to be in your system preferences, desktop preferences. So this yes. overrules. So 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 it sounds to me like what was happening is somebody was uh, overruling or replacing what had been done in the preference. So he was undoing this, and somebody was redoing it. Correct. In Safari, sounds like what was happening. Okay. And I I found the same thing. I looked in it and I and I tried this out. So. Um, now, it's an interesting feature, though, because, yeah, so Safari and, and, and as well as the Finder, of course, if, if you go in the Finder, right. um, you know, you can usually, uh, uh, well, actually, from, the, from the, the system preference, you can set uh, from an, a number of places, including what I like to do usually is from an iPhoto library. It'll make all those available, and I usually like to take some of the pictures that I've uh, taken sure. and use those as my desktop. So, sure. um, uh, but I guess the thing is, now, now I'm curious, so, so uh, of course... Uh, from the system preference, you could do this. I think from the finder, you can do this. And from Safari, I'm wondering where else you can do this. So it sounds like there are multiple hooks right. that all uh, all affect this this one setting. And yes, it can lead to uh, what sounds like shenanigans here. And I, I personally don't see a problem with Nicolas Cage. I, I think he's a fine actor. And uh, <laughs> uh, they, they could have they could have done a lot worse. We'll, we'll put it that way. <laughs> yeah. So in, in the chat room, the someone was asking it, where the location is. And just to be clear, it's in home slash library slash Safari slash Safari desktop picture. So there is actually a Safari folder inside the library folder inside your home folder. And that's where it's stored. Yeah. So, home being your. Yeah. Whatever your main username is. And then that's when right. you dig down from there. We, we typically refer to that. We usually started with a tilde which implies your uh, home folder for the, the currently logged in user. Yeah, so. And in fact, it doesn't just imply it. It refers to it. If you're in yes. the terminal and you type a tilde sign, uh, if you type hey. like, change directory space tilde and hit enter, it will bring you to your home folder. So we love that. Great. Yeah. So uh, uh, now, you know, this leads me now, again, we, we were wondering about, you know, how much, uh, how much is going to happen. Uh, but, you know, if we're going to have enough for one show and I think we will, Dave, but yes. I've run into this, before in uh, in the workplace and the only thing i i would add to this and i think it's a valuable suggestion yep never leave your computer with an open screen especially if you're in an environment with people like engineers and technical people or just people that want to play jokes on you i mean th this was a rule because uh, um, uh, in the workplace i've worked in an environment especially with people that are security people and we would usually um uh haze or, or initiate a lot of our interns the first time they left their computer even though they were told that this is good practice to lock their screen it was typically on windows machines right so of course you can do it on a, on a mac um anybody that left their computer even for for an extended period of time um we would usually teach them a lesson now typically it would be changing their desktop to something hilarious of course um, like sometimes of nicholas cage <clears throat> Uh, sometimes it would be a little more extreme, like logging into their email account, which they left logged in and sending an email to the rest of the department saying, hi, I'm an idiot or, you know, something, you know, but, but something that, that, you know, was, was good nature, but taught them a lesson, always lock your screen. And actually to, to, to wind back a, a little bit, um, in a prior life, uh, prior to the life I was just talking about, I worked in a defense, uh, uh capability. Yeah. 
um, you could actually get fired for that. And I actually knew a guy who worked, and I'm still in touch with him, who worked in the corporate computer room. His job was to look at people who had idle terminals, and uh, he would sometimes cruise by their offices. And if their terminals were open, um, that was, and and you can imagine, especially in a defense uh, environment. Oh yeah, that's, that's bad. That's really bad. And and some people would end up getting getting fired. Um, wow. Well, no, I mean, what would happen that, is the basically the admin. Yeah. The admin would walk by their screen and he would basically put a little sticky note saying, um, this is offense number one. Lock your screen when you leave it because, hey, I'm the good guy. But if a bad guy walks by and, uh, you, you know, because you're, you, I mean, if the screen's available, you could do anything, as we mentioned, uh, from changing the desktop to sending a wise guy email to much, much worse. So, yeah, um, if you're home, I think you're, you're cool, though you may, you know, hey, if you got some kids that are curious, <laughs> I don't know what they would do. They'd, they'd probably just, you know, maybe throw everything in the trash, but still lock your screen, folks. When are you going to be or, or set it for auto, as some people are suggesting in the room here, I think. Set your screen. I typically do this, uh, e- even though I'm, you know, typically the only one in the house. I'll, I'll set my screen to typically lock after maybe, you know, three minutes or something like that. Sure. Sure. Cool. No, good, good topic, though. I, yeah. I, I like it. Excellent. All right. Let's uh, let's let's go to Roland here. Roland Roland asked a question that we've been asked pretty, pretty frequently. It, it, it tends to come up. And the question is, there's a small group of students at my school who are interested in developing an iOS app for our school. Seeing as I run our school's computer lab and I have the freedom and resources to help them with such a project, I'd really enjoy helping them learn how to develop an app. Actually, since owning an iPhone, I've wanted to learn myself. However, I have no experience with development of any kind. I know that such things like Xcode, Objective-C, and C++ are languages that need to be mastered. Is this something I can teach myself with the right resources? If so, can you recommend any good resources such as books, websites, etc.? From listening to podcasts, I know that John's recently been wearing his developer hat, so perhaps there's something here. So I I will throw out the the one piece of advice I have, and then, John, I'll I'll let you take it from there. Mm -hmm. And that is, I, I asked this question, in fact... This question came up at WWDC. Someone was asking, what's the best way to learn how to program? Not how to learn how to program for the iPhone, uh, but to learn how to program. This wasn't an official conversation. This was like at some bar or whatever. Uh, And somebody chimed in and said, actually, I think developing for the iPhone is a great way to learn. And I looked at him like we all looked at him like he had his head screwed on wrong because Mm -hmm. that's a crazy thing. And he said, well, I wouldn't say that except There's this book called Beginning Mac Programming by Tim Isted, and he said not only does it teach you Xcode and Objective-C, but it also walks you through very general basic development principles. And he says it's so good that I I would recommend it for someone who wanted to just learn how to program. And he said, normally I wouldn't say that about Objective-C, but with this book, it's true. And and throughout the week, I asked this question of, of many people, and they all referred to this same book. And apparently there's a mm-hmm. beginning iPhone programming uh, book coming out, but it's all basically the same. I mean, there's some... There's some differences in terms of the libraries and, of course, the functionality of the devices. But uh, but as far as programming for them, the, the general concepts and the language is uh, is the same. So, uh, John, go. All right. So the thing is, I also actually came across this book. So I, I believe it's an Sep- O'Reilly title. Separately, huh? Yes. Oh, well, okay. well, in that, I, I believe, uh, so, so you and I, I mean, we, uh, and maybe I'll tell you about another goodie I got just today on my doorstep. All right. But, um. But I receive, you know, uh, PR emails from O'Reilly. I believe it's an O'Reilly title. 
And this was one that came up and I, you know, and they say, you know, typically if you want a copy, you know, write us. And because I, uh, so the thing is I am a, 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 I would say a low level uh, C type of guy, mostly windows okay. and other environments. So I'm, I'm certainly not a Mac programming expert, but I like to learn. And you know, there's stuff I can take away from the windows world. I mean, I, I know C, I know C plus C sharp, sure. Java, things like that. So it's basically for me, it's learning the environment, not so much programming fundamentals. Plus I, you know, went to school and got these pieces of paper right. with, you know, that teach me the theory. But um, looking at Tim's book, the thing is he does. Uh, so some parts I skip past because it, it's basically computer science fundamentals. Like, sure. You know, what's a byte, what's a bit, stuff like that. Um, and, and I'm just going to toss out uh, my suggestion here. So one, if you want to program on the Mac, number one, join the Mac developer program. I did this. I, I think a bunch of it. Did it. Now, now it's, it's it used to be pretty pricey, but right now I think it's it's ninety nine bucks for a year. That's right. You know, I mean, uh, anybody should be able to afford that. And I'm going to turn off the machine that's making noise here. So, um, so join the program. But but one thing you could do is that Apple offers. Uh, if you go into the you know developer.apple.com and you you join the program and then you go into it, they have development resources. Uh, and they have development videos, uh, and then under that, so once you log into the developer portal, they'll have under development resources, development videos, which kind of step you through how to use the tools and stuff like that. Um, one thing I would strongly suggest, which has worked in my experience, and this is what, what gets me up to speed when I, I want to learn something, is get some sample code. This is code that already works and does something useful. The nice thing is that you can take this and look at it and try to figure out how it does what it does. And even more importantly, try to screw around with it and, and see if you can make it do more than it does uh, out of the box. And you will learn a heck of a lot. Yes. So that's one thing I'm going to offer now that the thing is, I don't know if I would necessarily now. The thing is Tim's book. I looked through it and so I'm not through the whole thing right now, but he does a pretty good job of going between Xcode and Mac development and, development fundamentals now there's no way you can cram a computer science degree into any single book so one thing i would i'm going to suggest a couple of things so one you may want to look if you have a local university or public education program or anything like that you know go to a class or something and just sit down with people that can guide you through using the tools um i i, I can't stress enough how, how important it is to just get hands-on and step through the process and just see what happens now what i'm going to recommend though is i personally do not think Xcode um, is a great environment to start with. Um, if I had to start with something, and this is something that I still use, um, or I used for a lot of the front-end work that I did, is something, a visual tool, something like Visual Basic. Now, some people that claim to be real developers spit on Visual Basic because, you know, anybody can put something together in Visual Basic. And it actually gives you, I think, a bit too much freedom sometimes to put something together that right. looks terrible. Uh, I do like Xcode because it kind of enforces, uh, or, or I'm, I'm sorry, Coco enforces you because it gives you nice, uh, you know, basic objects to, to make things that look nice and Mac-like. Um, but something I'm going to recommend that I think may make easing in the program a little easier and may not require so much understanding of the, the low-level fundamentals is um, Real Studio or Real Basic. Yep. And uh, I don't know if you've used this, Dave or, or Pete, um, but but then uh, I. I value tools that let you kind of visually put something together where you're not really too concerned about the nuts and bolts, but it allows you to put something together more from a visual point of view than a functional low level talking to the hardware point of view. 
and and I've showed people this. I mean, some people I, I remember, especially interns, like the ones I was talking about, where they're like, "Ah, Visual Basic, you're kidding me." And I'd be like, "No, let me show you." I'm like, "Here, watch this." And some of them, literally within five minutes, I could show them how to build a working Windows application, and they'd be like, "Oh my gosh, really? That's pretty cool." It is cool. And and once you get that that warm fuzzy that yes, not knowing the nuts and bolts, uh, because the it takes time. I mean, do you, do you really need to, and then there's the question, do you really need to know about bits and bytes and, you know, pipes and, and sockets and, and all that stuff to get to develop a piece of software? Maybe you do, maybe you don't, but, but just the, 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 uh, you know, again, the good feeling that you get putting something together where you can quickly put it together and make something happen and, and get instant feedback that something, happened. I mean, the typical app I would do is I would put something together, it would have a button, it would have one field where you enter something and another field that would display something. I'm like, check it out. And I showed them how to put it together. They would enter something in one field, click the button. It would display it in the other. And they're like, wow, I did that. And I'm like, yes, you did. So that's cool. Um, so, so I would say, um, Tim's book is great. Um, if you're going to take the Apple path, then you might as well start there. If you're, if you're going to take the general development path, I mean, you know, heck, you know, like I did, I started one of the associates in, you know, uh, computer science and, and progress down there, though that takes time. That takes two, four, six years to, right. to do that. Um, but, but a lot of communities, including mine, have public education programs that will sit you down and get you started so you can at least get comfortable with the environment. It may be Windows, it may be Mac. Um, so I don't know if you have anything to add, guys. Um, uh, I do. Augie uh, Mendoza put the uh, link to uh, the book in the, uh, in the chat room there. And uh, I bought it. It'll be delivered tomorrow. <laughs> Actually, that uh, he put a different book oh, right the- in the chat room. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a couple of there's a couple of recommendations okay. from the chat room. One is uh, uh, the books by Dave Mark, and I, apparently there's quite a few on Objective C, Coco, and iPhone programming. Uh, and then there's Coco programming for Mac OS 10, the third edition, uh, which is out there too. And I'm not sure if that's Dave Mark's book or not. Uh, no, that's mm-hmm. Aaron Hillgas. So. Yeah, so there you go. So there's a couple of resources, and uh, I, think, okay. I think we're good. Let's, uh, and those are good. Uh, those are good, I would say, yeah, if, if you're Mac-specific. Because the thing is, the, the weirdness, and just to clarify, Objective-C is pretty much only an Apple thing. Correct. Nobody else outside Apple really uses Objective-C. Uh, it's something that's back from the next days. It's very nice because C traditionally is not object-oriented. C++ is, but, but it was their kind of deviation from C that gave them a lot of the power of C++ without being C++. And then, of course, Coco is the framework that Apple offers you that gives you all sorts of great tools that can get you up and running very, very quickly. So um, so the question is, if you want to be Mac-specific, these are great titles. If you want to be more general, um, you may want to take a different path. But, cool. Uh, good topic. All right, and then we'll... Uh, no, that's great stuff. We'll, uh, can we save all these comments here? I want to link to all these later. Uh, save the links. Uh, you can save the links while I'm reading Ron's question, which I'll do right now. Ron, okay. Ron asks, I am buying a new MacBook Pro soon and wondered if the easiest way to migrate my older MacBook data to it was to physically swap the drive to the new machine. As an old Windows user, I would never have done that since drivers and other hardware would never be compatible between machines. But since I'm now a Mac geek, I thought it might just work fine. I do have and use SuperDuper, so I know I could always go that route. I used SuperDuper when I upgraded my MacBook's drive to a newer 500 gig model, and the clone method worked just great. Okay, uh, so you want to? Are you still busy collecting those links? You want me to take this one, John, and then uh, um, I can you? multitask. But anyways, my my initial advice was because uh, I believe he was indicating 
that he was starting with a um uh yeah i'm gonna multitask here so stop multitasking and answer the question i'm gonna stop all right so the thing was he said now now in general practice cloning your drive and then bringing it over to a newer mac assuming the same processor right um is probably a good approach in case though when he he got one of the newer macs and both dave and i have been privy to information on this he got one of the new i5 or i7 macs the problem is as as we i think we touched on in a prior show they have a version of mac os 10 that has a, a subtle differences in the kernel which basically the end result is if you try to boot from that drive that you cloned it's not going to happen so in general cloning the drive my, my favorite is a uh, carbon copy cloner dave uh, and I've done this in the past. That's normally, I think, a great approach to migrate to a new system. In this case, though, it's not going to work because right. the system is not going to boot. Right. And then I will hand it to you as to what would you do or, or what's the best approach? Yeah. So I, I, I agree that that uh, if you're keeping if you're migrating to a new drive in the same machine, cloning it, super duper carbon copy cloner or any of the above are 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 the right way to do it or certainly a very good way to do it. Uh, and that would be my preferred way. Uh, however, doing this, I would use the migration assistant. Uh, that would, that, that would be the first place I would go because the concept behind the migration assistant is it keeps the operating system the same that came on that drive and only migrates into it, your applications, preferences, and user documents and, and that sort of thing. And Apple, you know, the migration assistant was good out of the gate. It's great now. It, I mean, it really, really works. And I, I've had so few problems migrating things in uh, that, that that's definitely the way I'd go. And that way you're sure not to be mucking up any of the OS components that were required uh, for the new machine. So from one from from one Mac to this, either the same Mac or at least the same model Mac, you could clone. Uh, but uh, but going to a different model Mac, I would only use the migration assistant. I would not do the uh, the clone method that we that we always now, used to use. And I'm going to push back a little bit because we, well, we've heard this concern from from some listeners. The problem is potentially migration assistant can and maybe I want to modify what I uh, or let's talk about it. Yeah, uh, migration assistant can potentially bring over cruft that you may not need because I think it, it takes a pretty it pretty much pulls over everything that belongs to a particular user. Correct. So the thing is you may bring over some drivers or kernel extensions or prep files or other stuff that you may never need. So maybe it's just a matter of having extra cruft that may, you know, take up a little extra space. And maybe the best strategy is you you bring stuff over with migration assistant and then you see if everything works. And if it doesn't like when I did this, you know, as you know, uh, recently I helped, you know, the mom upgrade from a iBook G4, which of course is a uh, power PC to a MacBook. And of course, some things just didn't work. They were too old. And, and normally the OS indicated this. It would show the app and it would have a big circle with a line through it, which basically meant I'm not running this. I, I can't. I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. So, um, uh, but other than that, it brought over everything verbatim. I mean, it was funny because she was actually shocked. She's like, this looks like my old machine. I'm like, yes, because it, I mean, it brought over the desktop patterns, the, the icons on the desktop. I mean, everything it was, uh, I mean, I, I still think it's, it's an amazing piece of software, although it may again, bring over a little bit of cruft. Uh, the other option is some purists may say, 
I'm going to install all my apps from scratch, and I'm going to bring over my documents manually. I'm going to copy my documents folder, assuming you have the discipline to just put your documents in the documents folder. Um, and maybe that's another approach, but I, I think that's just creating a lot of work that, that's probably not necessary. Uh, yeah, well, you know, comparing this compared to if you copy and clone everything over, you're getting all the cruft anyway. Right. Right. So, you know, there, there you go. But but yeah, I, I, I there there is there is a time and a place for starting from scratch. And if, you know, getting a new machine every three years isn't a bad time to do it. But most of the time it is a bad time to do it because you're you know busy and you got a new machine. You just want to migrate and get moving. So uh, so, you know, there you go. All right. So I say maybe if you have a recent, if if you're talking not a very old machine, yep. Then I think Migration Assistant is definitely the way to go. Yep. If you're talking something very old, though, though again, as I mentioned, my experience was positive. But if you're talking something really, really old, and you're like taking it from 10.0 to 10.6, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not that I think anybody's running 10.0. They may be. I hope not. That was like Mac OS 10 beta, wasn't it? Yes, sir. Uh, all right. Let's uh, let's go on to Gavin here. Gavin says, I have a dilemma with my iPad that I can hope you can that I hope you can help me with. My setup is as follows. Uh, and he's basically got uh, a time capsule with a and a Drobo, a Mac mini, a MacBook Pro, an iPad and an iPhone 3G. He says, I use my Drobo to store all my important files as well as a storage device for all my DVDs that I have backed up using Ripit and automatically transferred to Drobo using Hazel. I use my Mac Mini as a media center connected to my LCD TV using 802.11G that I use for front row and stream my RIP DVDs stored on the Drobo. On the Drobo, I have all the video TS folders from the RIP DVDs, which I haven't yet converted to M4V files and only plan to convert the movies that I want to watch on my iDevices. My Mac Mini is the Mac I use to sync content to my iPhone, as this historically has all the music, video, and apps. But now I have the iPad, which I sync to the MacBook Pro, as I'm more likely to have the both together for backup purposes. I don't want to fill my MacBook Pro hard drive with M4V files, as I like to keep it lean and mean. Is there any way I can get movies onto the iPad without copying them to the MacBook Pro? I presume I cannot sync my iPad with two different iTunes libraries. Is my only option to sync my iPad with the Mac Mini? Okay, so a couple of different questions here. Now, we're talking about syncing content to the iPad so, iPad, so I'm assuming he wants to be able to view this when he's not necessarily online. And, and I'm in the same boat. What I use, and there is a way to do this. There's a couple of different ways. Either using Goodreader, which is an app for the iPad, or Dropbox. Uh, with Dropbox... It's relatively easy. It's easy with both. You put the M4V in a folder that's on your Dropbox and then uh, you sync it to the Dropbox app on your iPad. Uh, the problem with that is you'll be syncing across the Internet because Dropbox does not sync locally from uh, it'll sync locally of, across your network from computer to computer, but doesn't yet sync locally for your iDevices. Uh, if you remove a file from your Dropbox from your Mac or anywhere else, uh, it will also disappear from your iPad's Dropbox folder, even if you've marked it as a favorite ready to save. So for that reason, I don't recommend using the free Dropbox app for this purpose. I recommend using Goodreader, which I think is 99 cents, if I'm not mistaken. It is. Yeah, it's okay. an unbelievably good deal. Yeah, it's cheap. I know. At, at, at 10 times the price, uh, I would buy that app. Yeah. So what Goodreader is, is it's a it's essentially a media library. It was built to be a PDF viewer. 
but it, and it, it does that, but it does so much more. And the cool part is not only can you store things and they're stored in Goodreader's document store, but you can pull things in from a variety of sources. So uh, if I know the URL to a PDF, I can type that URL or paste it in and Goodreader will suck it down. If I want to pull stuff off my Dropbox, I can put in my Dropbox credentials and Goodreader will suck it down. And with Goodreader, anything that's sucked into the app stays there until you delete it from the app. You can also uh, point Goodreader towards, you know, if you've got a web share on your uh, on your Mac mini, you could point it to that and pull content from there. One more step. And actually, there's two more steps. Uh, one more option is you can put Goodreader into server mode. And then mount it on your Wi-Fi network from your Mac as a document store and just copy documents there. And anything you copy there, you could copy your M4V files and they go straight across your Wi-Fi to the Goodreader app and they stay there until you delete them. And that's what I did uh, when I wanted to watch a bunch of movies on the plane or whatever, is I just dumped them into Goodreader. I didn't have to fill up my MacBook Pro hard drive and I was able to, to you know, manage directly, essentially, uh, on my iPad since uh, since I did that, they've now re-added USB support to uh, to Goodreader from the Mac. So you can sync not only over Wi-Fi, but also directly over USB. So uh, so that that really that's the magic answer. So, yeah, you don't you don't necessarily want to fill up your computer and your iPad with all these movies, especially if you've got, you know, a small drive or an SSD drive in your uh, in your Mac. And and Goodreader is the magic answer for that. Like I said, 99 cents. It's it, yeah, I agree with you, Pete. It's it. it it, it, it's, it's a total no brainer purchase. John, Pete, anything? No, I, mm. I don't know. What can you add? I, I love it. Okay. <laughs> Good reader is it. Good reader is it. Yeah, all I right. Use it. I use it for all my flight stuff. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Flight manual charts. Yep. Beautiful. I, you know, I also use Good reader. I, I think, um, I put PDFs of song charts into it. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. And, uh, and that way, you know, I, I don't have to have, I mean, you can look around the studio here, Pete, it, there's <laughs> oh, yeah. just sh- sh- reams of paper everywhere. And uh, I've started moving all that stuff to the iPad. So I don't have to like, sh- you know, riffle through the paper or go into a gig or, you know, even just to yeah. a rehearsal, whatever. It's all just right there. Good stand to go. right there for the gig. Yeah. yeah. You put it on a stand. The iPad's got a 10 hour battery. So I just, you know, turn off the, uh, the auto dim. Or, sure. Yeah, exactly. And then you're good to go. So. Just don't accidentally. Use it as a drum surface. <laughs> right. Don't hit it. Yeah. Although, you know, what's interesting, uh, a little aside, and I read this advice somewhere, I can't remember where, but uh, the iPad and, and the iPhone too works just fine inside a Ziploc bag. So if you get a one gallon Ziploc bag and I do this in the kitchen, we launch the Epicurious app and we use it for recipes and we put the iPad inside the app. We can touch it. You can move things around. It's the touchscreen totally works inside the Ziploc bag. And yet, uh, it's totally protected from spills and splashes and all that stuff. So I don't know what that tells us about our, our presumptions about its, its inductive surface or whatever it is, John, but uh, it totally works. I still have to explore that. We had our old, uh, own Jeff Gamut actually explore this, and I think he found that, um, yeah, it's a, it's a capacitive display, but the thing is, it's not so much a matter of conductivity. Anyways, what Jeff found, I think, is that if he got a piece of felt so, so, so our friend Jeff, uh, actually, he's a, a, I would say an accomplished uh, illustrator. Yeah. And, and he likes drawing pictures on his iPad. But he had a problem because he would typically be uh, resting his palm. And the thing is, the display, of course, in the iPad, as, as with any Apple device, 
will detect that. And he was like, how do I get it to not recognize this? Mm, and uh, right. so, so a little tangent here, um, which we, we haven't done one for a while. But anyways, are we and, on one already? Uh, sure. tangent to a tangent. <laughs> but he was saying, how can I avoid this? And so he asked the question, does anybody know of a non-conductive material I can use to, to shield me? Now, the thing is, I don't think he was necessarily characterizing the problem correctly because I was like, well, how about paper? Because paper... Last I checked, paper doesn't really conduct too well. Right. And that I don't think it does. I mean, it's actually an insulator, if anything. But I tried this on my iPod Touch, or iTouch, which drives some people nuts, and uh, sorry about that. I just think it's condensing the term. But anyways, I tried a piece of paper, and I'm like, wow, it's picking that up. So so it's... Yeah, but two pieces com- of paper, no. And, and actually, I tried this so with a thick piece of cardboard. Yeah. So what I actually I actually had a uh, a holder for a Starbucks gift card, and if I folded that on itself a couple of times, that was thick enough. Now what he found was actually a piece of felt. So I think it's not so much that whether you what you, what you put on there is conductive, but if it's thick enough to maybe not sense the pressure of you just pressing down on it. No, I still got to look no, into it's it. Not, no, we we tested this. It's not pressure. You did. Yeah, no, you and okay. I did. I think we did it. We certainly did it before a show. A we may bit. have done it on a show, but no, it is not pressure. It's uh, okay. it it's it's something more than that. We 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 um. Oh, oh. Yeah, I'm just not a well, electrical engineer, so I don't wet or something like that. It it's different. Yeah, it's you know, it's, it's it's something. Yeah, because I'm pushing real hard through a couple of pieces of paper and nothing. So okay. yeah, so I'm not I'm not sure what it is actually. Well, maybe it is a. Uh, Again, I, I don't have enough uh, double E knowledge to know right, this, so I don't right. know if it's conductivity or capacitance or inductance or, or whatever. But uh, in general, I found that something that uh, yeah, something thin like a piece of paper did not prevent the iPad or iPod Touch from sensing that something was happening. Right. But uh, Jeff found that a piece of felt uh, worked very well. Now, there's also, and I think we suggested this, he didn't have them available. Uh, they make actually, I think, uh, several people make special gloves especially uh, fingerless gloves that just cover your palm, but they leave your fingers available so you can illustrate. And I think that would probably solve the problem as well. So. Yeah, it could. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Oh, on a Tony. I Tony. like this one. Yeah. Cause I, I, I figured this one out. So. <laughs> <laughs> Tony writes, I've had two background processes running and half heartedly tried to resolve this, but got serious recently. One was from an installed app called spring cleaning. A schedule kept launching and shutting down every 10 seconds. I uninstall it and trash the remnants. That one worked. Uh, the one that is persistent is from a color monkey demo I had installed. And that's monkey M-U-N-K-I, just like it sounds. I uninstalled using, I think, App Zapper and thought the problem was fixed. As you will note, uh, I, in my console logs, this problem carries on. I found a few color monkey prefs, scripts. I trashed them all. Still, no joy. Uh, and, and indeed Tony sent along, she sent along the console logs and it was showing that color monkey or something was trying to launch color monkey and then dying after 10 seconds and then coming back around and then dying and coming back around. So, uh, so John go. Here's what was happening. So I actually was able to figure out what the problem was here. Yeah. So looking in the logs, what was happening is, is, uh, it was identifying that the process responsible for trying to do this was per user, and would basically go through this endless cycle of saying throttling respawn. Then it would say POSIX underscore respawn, and the name of the 
color monkey process. And then it would say, no such follow directory. And then it would say exit. And it would keep doing it like every 10 seconds. So on the one hand, uh, I don't think that's a big deal. The, or right. I do not think this was something that would, would drag the system to its knees. It, it was every 10 seconds trying to launch this thing. Now, the thing is, to, to, to step back a bit, what is Launch D, you may ask? What is Launch D, I may what ask? Is <laughs> well, I don't know. No, Launch D, I believe, is kind of the launcher of all processes under most uh, Unix, uh, Unices or Unixes. Um, but OS 10 and launch D, I think, is something early in the boot process is something that will launch pretty much everything else, I, I, I think, to, to kind of put it in a nutshell. It sort of becomes the, yeah, the, the, the parent process of everything else. That's right. Right. Now, the thing is, it will launch all sorts of things. Um, now, how do you know? Now, now, in this particular case, I found a specific solution to this problem. So in this case, what was happening is this was... Um, a file that was in, hold on. So just to, just to be over. clear, and I, I had to look this up after you said it, John, was you said Launch okay. D is in a lot of Unixes. It was actually developed by Apple uh, to, to really? be used in Mac okay. OS 10, 10.4. Yeah, I didn't think it was used previous to that. But uh, but yeah, just to clarify, it is it is an Apple thing. But but it's it's now an open source uh, framework that, that anybody could Great. use. Yes. And I think Apple actually, what happened is I think in the past you would have multiple programs launching things when you booted the system. I think Apple encouraged yes. people, you know, let's just all let's all center on launch D as being the one right. application that launches everything when the system starts up. So we don't have this big mess. I think that that, that was what encouraged them to do that. And that, that's great. But anyways, so for, for this specific problem, the problem is if you look in, like we mentioned, tilde or your home directory slash library slash launch agents, if you look in that directory, you're going to see a bunch of files in there. All of those files in there, their purpose is to try to launch a piece of software on startup. Right. Now, the thing is, launch D normally is very persistent. And if what is in that directory is something that doesn't exist, it's going to try, as we've seen, every 10 seconds until eternity <laughs> to try to launch it again. Now, now again, as we mentioned... It's not going to drag your system down, but it, it, it can, if anything, it's going to clutter your console, and that's bad. So basically, I suggested um, to Tony, look in, in this directory, and, and uh, I'm sure what happened is is that she found something with the name Color Monkey in it, deleted it, and, and actually she wrote back and said, yes, I deleted it, and the message went away. Now, to, to, to look at the bigger picture, Dave, um, you may want to get something, and actually I haven't seen it updated in a while, but I think it's a very nice utility. Um, Lingon. Lingon. Yeah, I, I love Lingon. And Lingon, what Lingon is, is Lingon is like the application to let you look at all your launch the applications. And for example, I launched Lingon just to look at this. And if you launch Lingon, you will see um, that it has different categories. And actually, this process along with all the processes in this particular directory, are listed in a category called My Agents. Now, Lingon also lists pretty much... Uh, now, you got to be careful because Lingon is going to show you the, the, the guts of Mac OS X and what it's launching in order to get itself basically in an operational state. That's what LaunchD does. LaunchD is, is taking all these other files everywhere and launching these applications so you can use your computer. So, if you're going to use Lingon, look, but... Be very careful if you're going to touch. <laughs> yes. Now, what I saw in Lingon is actually it did have a feature where you could highlight one of these scripts and actually say enable or disable. I don't know if it, it 
sets. I, I'm thinking maybe setting the executable flag on it or something, but um, but it sounds to me like what, what happened is that uh, Tony went and just actually removed the color monkey. Uh, I think it's usually a plist file, and uh, and the problem went away. Good. So so, so that, Lingon Lingon has not been updated in a while. I think no, it hasn't been updated in a couple of years. It's a dead duck in terms of updates, but it still works. Because, because works. the locations yeah. of all this stuff hasn't changed. As soon as Apple changes the location of it, you know, if in 10.7 they put it, excuse me, somewhere else, it's over. Yeah. yeah. Looks like you can right. really goober your system wing on. <laughs> oh, I love it, though. It's great. <laughs> really powerful. But, yeah. but, you know, if you just, again, look and don't touch or yeah. modify anything, it shows, I mean, th- this will give you a deep understanding of what is involved in starting up your machine so it gets to an operational state. Well, so, you know, so I think it's great. Lingon's one of those programs that I always mention when I'm doing my running your Mac lean, clean and mean session, which I do at user mm-hmm. groups and Macworld Expo because it's so powerful. But but the caveat I mention every time is, hey, look, if you don't know what it is, Google it before you r- remove anything before you cut its throat. <laughs> yeah. Just, you know, if you don't know what it is, Google it. And if you still don't know what it is. Leave it alone. Don't drive, you know, why open that door? Just leave it alone. And it's that simple. So. All right. Uh, is it time to move on to Jim? Jim thinks so. What else is it time for? Uh, Jim says, uh, in an effort to clean up my desk, I would like to have one large external hard drive partitioned such that half of the drive is delegated to time machine. And the other half is a daily clone backup using carbon copy cloner. I've attempted this with two new hard drives, both of which eventually failed to work since they failed by different mechanisms. I'm not sure it had to do with the partitioning. It may have just been two bad drives, but I'm reluctant to order another one without being sure that I have not been part of the problem. The first drive was an iOmega prestige one terabyte USB hard drive. I was able to partition it without difficulty, but it immediately began to make clattering noises as if the drive was dying. Tech support thought it was the power supply and offered to send me a new one for me to install. I just sent the thing back to Amazon. Then I decided I would get a more expensive hard drive, and I went with the Lassie one terabyte USB desktop external. It did not like to be partitioned into two partitions, but I finally accomplished it. At first it would mount, then it failed to mount. Tech support thought it was a bad drive. I sent it back to Amazon. Before I'll order another hard drive, I'd like to be sure that my partitioning is not causing any problems, and I've just been having a run of bad luck. Uh, You know, John, from my standpoint... Uh, this is an odd set of circumstances and certainly uh, uh, very it's certainly worth questioning. But in my experience, there's no reasoning that the reason that partitioning a drive uh, into more than one partition would would cause any any physical damage. Uh, not certainly not to the power supply and probably not even to the drive. I mean, all drives are partitioned. It's just in this case, mm-hmm. there's one additional partition uh, that, that he's using. So. Uh, it, it, no, I I can't think that I can't think that him partitioning it would would play any part in the drive dying. I I agree with you. I think I think uh, the only thing both you and I came up with the only thing you want to make sure of is when you get the drive. Now the thing is, I think a lot of these drives sometimes are probably not formatted for the in Mac. the ideal format to be used on a Mac. Yes, and and the way you 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 want to get around this, and I, I think I actually have a screenshot, or uh, you mentioned this, Dave, but. No, here, here we go. So if you run disutility, yeah. so, so this is what I would recommend. If you get a drive from anybody, unless they're people that explicitly say this is a Mac drive and you're not always going to run into that with a lot of these guys. Sure. They're probably going to ship it as a NTFS or, you know, fat or whatever. 
So, so what you want to do is you want, when, when, you're, when you get the drive is reformat it, maybe copy whatever is on there. There, there may be something useful, probably not. Sure. Um, but if you go to Disk Utility under the Partition tab, there is then going to be a button, Options, dot, dot, dot. And if you click on the Options, dot, dot, dot button, you're going to see the following. You're going to see three choices. You're going to see GUID Partition Table. For the most part, with any modern Mac, this is what you want. Uh, and actually, the description, I'll you know go through it right here. Basically, GUID, uh, to use the disk to start up an Intel-based Mac or to use the disk as a non-startup disk with any Mac with Mac OS 10, 10.4 or later. Right. So I would say, for the most part, unless you're 10.4 or earlier, that's what you want. Now, there's another one, and this actually applies to me because I still have my, my dinosaur here, the G5. Apple Partition Map is the other option. That is if you have a power, uh, again, if you have a dinosaur like I do, a PowerPC-based Mac, that's the partition scheme that you want. And then there's also Master Boot Record. That's the third one. That's if you got a DOS or Windows disk. And, and you should rarely be choosing that, especially if you're using the disk on a Mac. So uh, the only thing I could imagine, Dave, is that it was, uh, but even then, I, I can't see a faulty partition. I mean, uh, the Mac will either see the disk or it won't. Even if it, 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 you know, if it's Apple Partition Map or Master Boot Record, it'll still see it. But yeah, I, I agree with you. There, there's no way. I mean, you remember the the battle days when you had to actually configure the cylinders and the heads and the, oh, the yeah. you know. But 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 oh. we're way beyond that. I mean, I I could think in those days if you got that wrong, then the disk controller would try to make the drive do things it wasn't meant to do, and maybe you could destroy the drive. Yeah, maybe. Uh, I think it's unlikely, but um, no, I think he just ran into. I mean. Yeah, I mean, you know, millions of hard drives are made every year, and it's, yeah. it's you're just bound to get, to get two one. Of the bad ones. Yeah. yeah, it's unfortunate. I've yeah. I've been lucky. I don't think I've ever gotten a drive. Um, yeah, again, knock on wood. And now you know, of course, everything's yeah, come not, crashing down. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> but I've never, I, I've never yet. Now, typically, I, I, I haven't used a drive. You know, probably for you know longer than three to five years before i move right. on and you know that's wipe it that's and good advice it. actually don't yeah don't rely on a drive that's more than three to five years old um certainly that 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 five-year mark uh yeah without man. a back a uh, strong strong backup, backup. double-layered that's right approach. that's right yeah yeah all right uh let's uh let's let's listen to what taylor has to say uh, whoop, uh, oh i guess i could have just played that huh john are we ready we're ready, right? I'm ready. All right, go. Hi, John and Dave. I've got an interesting time machine problem that I'm hoping y'all might be able to, to help me solve. I've got a, a kind of a complicated setup. I've got a Drobo, an original uh, USB Drobo uh, that that I've you know fully stocked, and I've got it partitioned into three partitions. Uh, I'd found instructions how to do this. He'd set up the first you know, one partition uh, I've got uh, that I use for my time machine uh, partition for uh, my 27-inch iMac, and I've got a second partition that I use for the, uh, the time machine backup for my wife's MacBook, and a third partition uh, I use for you know all remaining storage, and that gets expanded whenever uh, I add hard drives to the Drobo. Uh, now that, that that setup is, has worked great. You know, I had the Drobo connect, connected directly to my 27-inch iMac running Snow Leopard. Worked great. Uh, time machine and you was working from my iMac. Time machine was working from my uh, my wife's MacBook, uh, connecting over our wireless network at home uh, to the the Drobo that's attached to my iMac. Uh, now the problem has arisen that I'm I'm trying to 
I've got an old Mac Mini G4 that's running Tiger that I want to use as kind of a home server. Uh, and so I've got the Drobo connected to that Mac Mini now. And, uh, you know, of course, I, the, the Mac Mini sees the Drobo and sees all three partitions, no problem. Uh, but the problem is I the MacBook and the 27-inch iMac are unable to uh, have Time Machine back up to those Drobo partitions. And... Uh, the problem that I'm that I'm getting is this. I, I'm, I'm doing this on the 27-inch iMac. I get a Time Machine error. Uh, it says the backup disk image you know, slash volume slash iMac TM2 uh, uh, dash one slash Taylor 27 iMac dot sparse bundle could not be created. Error one. All right, and I'm going to uh, I'm going to stop it right there because that's the issue, uh, and 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 that's the part I wanted to get to. When you're seeing it referring to a disk. Uh, anything but the internal drive is considered to be a subfolder of slash volumes on your Mac. And that's just a way of Unix doing its thing. So that's totally normal. What you should see is uh, anytime the, the OS is referring to a disk, it's going to say slash volume slash, and then the name of the disk pretty much as it appears on your desktop. Uh, in this case, his disk is named iMac TM2, but the computer is referring to it or it's looking for iMac TM2 dash one. And it's that dash one that he mentioned. That's really the trick here. And the, the issue is if you have it in the volumes folder, what, what happens is when you mount a new disc, it creates a, a the, the Mac creates a subfolder in the volumes folder with that name and then links the disc to it. Uh, it. It's a little bit wonky, but that's how Unix works. So, what happens is it it might look in that folder, and if there's a folder already named, in this case, iMac TM2, well, then it has to create another folder with a different name. So it puts a dash one or a dash two or a dash three. If you start seeing that happening, eventually things are going to get confused because it is going to start to wipe out those other folders. It's not going to link the drive to the dash one, the dash two. It's going to link it to the main iMac TM2 at some point, and now things aren't going to be found. So... The magic answer is, in theory, relatively simple, but uh, but you must be careful in practice. So the first thing is you want to get rid of you want to eject all your external drives or certainly all the, the instances of this particular drive and disconnect it from your Mac just to be safe. Then look in your volumes folder. And the way to get there is in the finder to go up to the go menu, choose go to folder and type in slash volumes. Once you're there, you should see. A list of all of the uh, the drives that are mounted and you're going to leave those alone. And then if you see other drives that aren't mounted, especially with these dash one dash two, but even if there isn't the dash one, if there's the name of a folder for a drive that's not mounted, just throw it away. Uh, and once you've done that, then remount the Drobo. Uh, it should appear in the volumes folder. You'll see it appear there. It'll also appear on your desktop. The name should be exactly the same. Uh, and, and once they are, You've got to go back in because Time Machine is now looking for that drive with the dash one. So you've just got to tell Time Machine, nope, go look here. And it's going to pick up your old backups. You're not going to have to start from scratch, but you've just got to repoint Time Machine. So you go into System Preferences, Time Machine, and click, I believe, Change Disk and point it at that uh, at that fold, at that new drive. And then from then on, you should be good to go. But yeah, as soon as you start seeing that dash one appear uh, either in your volumes folder or somewhere else, that's when you know you've got uh, you've got some confusion happening and you got to clear it out. That's my that's my story anyway. I'm sticking to mm. it. 
I'm with you. All right. You got anything to add to that, John, or is it? Uh... Not really. All right. I've, I've never run into it. Oh, Tell really? Truth. Well, you don't run a lot of ex- external drives. Is that right? No, nope. the only one I have is my uh, occasionally, but no, for time machine, I use time capsule and I, I've never, never seen that happen with that. So I, I have quite a few external partitions that I use and, and I don't run into it all that regularly, maybe once, maybe twice a year. You know, if a drive gets pulled, disconnected and then reconnected in a, in the wrong way, uh, it, that can certainly happen. So hmm? and as far as partitions, you know me, I don't like partitions, man. I know. I know. Why? 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 Just put it all in one one <laughs> disc, man. Makes your life easy. Pete, you, Pete's got a question. I do have a question. What? Oh. These no, these were great questions, and I'm yeah. wondering if I wanted to submit one. How would I do that? Oh, there yeah. you go. Yeah, wise guy. What a guy. Uh, yes, that's a good question, Pilot Pete. Uh, so you could call us at two zero six 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 Geek, which John is. Four three three five. Did you get? Or you know what you could do? Four three three five. That's right. That's okay. You could. <laughs> but I think the best way is you could send an email, and since uh, you're listening to the premium feed, you probably want to send an email, Dave, to premium at macgeekapp.com. Did you is say right? premium at macgeekapp.com? I, I was asking you, but I do believe it's premium at macgeekapp.com is where you want to send an email, which could just be text, screenshots, um, and a reminder, like even some of the questions we've gotten, um, try to be as specific as possible. Like we've had people write in and say, I got a printer. Which printer? Like we had that come up in a prior show. Somebody said, I got a printer and it's not working. Tell us which printer it is. It helps. So as much detail as you can give us about your OS, your computer, and the model number of the device, the ports. That's another one. Like we had a question in the past. Is it a network printer? Is it a USB? Uh, Whatever. So to the best of your ability, if you can describe the device or give us a model number or something like that, it's really, really helpful. And and, and I'll throw something in. And uh, unlike uh, my, my friend, Mr. Braun here, my dear friend, Mr. Braun here, try to be as concise as possible with your questions because what? that does allow us to uh, to read them on the air. So be, be specific and concise and pithy at the same time. Are you saying I'm not concise? Well, you just rambled a little bit, so I thought that was kind of a funny little thing to say. Well, Dave, I really don't think I ramble much. I mean, I'm usually pretty direct in... What else we got here? Uh, iTunes comments. We love them. Leave them. Positive, negative, constructive are good. But uh, and there's a Skype line at Mac Geek Gab, and and uh, Pete, I think you had uh, you had something you wanted yeah, to add quick here. Quick shout no. out to Fred Clawson at Albuquerque Center, one of the listeners. Connected uh, uh, mm. with them on the radio. So uh, hey, cool. Yeah, Fred on the radio for listening. Yeah. yeah. What, what kind of radio? Uh, Victor Hotel Foxtrot, VHF uh, around uh, one thirty three seventy five, I think, in the Albuquerque Center area. Oh, oh, yeah. VHF. Is that VHF? Yeah. It's VHF. Oh, yeah. We've done that. I've done that. Very cool. Awesome. Uh, so I am on vacation next week, so we will not be podcasting next week. If any of you are attending the uh, Rush Show or live near Mohegan Sun Casino in Connecticut, we'll be doing something before the show on the 19th. Uh, you know, maybe getting together in the bar for a drink, depending on how many people there. I don't know what, but you know, uh, tweet us, contact us. Oh, tweet us. Dave Hamilton is me on Twitter. John F. Braun is him. Uh, mm-hmm. Pilot Pete is him, and of course, Mac Geek Gab is mm-hmm. all of it. And that's it. We have communicators. This is Michael Johnston's podcast. 
he uh, he converts this show to AAC for us and for you. And of course, all the bandwidth is provided by Cashfly, C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y. And with that, John, I think I'm almost done with my work week here and ready to head out on vacation. I, got, I think I've got a couple things to do. So. All right. So with the uh, he can, uh, are you getting the uh, presidential suite or? I'm staying down the road. That place is way too oh. expensive, man. <laughs> Mohegan, really? Yeah. Oh yeah. They want like a hotel at a, a night for the for a the hotel, hotel at a casino is expensive. <laughs> I actually I remember the last time I was there, Dave. I believe the cash machines default to giving you hundred dollar bills. As well, they should. It's even more expensive if you play in the casino. All right, have a good week, everybody, and uh, we'll talk to you when we get back. Do- Do-